Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 18 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth Woodville, Chapter 1, Part 2. It was at the ancient palace of Reading, on Michaelmas Day, 1464, that Edward IV finally declared Elizabeth to be his wedded wife. A council of the peers was convoked there, when the king took Elizabeth by the hand and presented her to them as his rightful queen. She was then led by the young Duke of Clarence, in solemn pomp, to the stately Abbey Church of Reading, where she was publicly declared queen, and, having made her offering, received the congratulations of all the nobility assembled there, among whom, some authorities declare, was the Earl of Warwick. A portrait of Elizabeth Woodville, to be found in a fine illumination in the Harleian collection in the British Museum, represents her in the costume in which she first appeared as a royal bride at Reading. The manner in which Elizabeth's hair is arranged proves that the limning was drawn while she was a bride. She wears a lofty crown of peculiar richness, the numerous points of which are finished with fleur-de-lis. Her hair, with the exception of a small ring in the middle of the forehead, is streaming down her back and reaches to her knees. It is pale yellow, and its extreme profusion agrees with the description of the chroniclers. She is very fair, her eyelids are cast down in an affected look of modesty, which gives a sinister expression to her face. Her attire is regal, the material of her dress is a splendid kind of gold brocade, in stripes called bodikins, which was solely appropriated to the royal family. It is a garter blue, of a column pattern, alternating with gold. The sleeves are tight, the bodice close-fitting, with robings of ermine turned back over the shoulders. It is girded round the waist with a crimson scarf, something like an officer's sash. The skirt of the dress is full, with a broad ermine border, and finishes with a train many yards in length. This is partly held up by the queen, while the extremity is folded round the arms of a train-bearer, who is probably one of Elizabeth's sisters. A rich blue satin petticoat is seen beneath the dress, and the shoes are of the pointed form, called sometimes crocows, and sometimes pignancies. The queen wears a pearl necklace strung in an elaborate pattern, called a device. Although Edward IV was at times notoriously unfaithful to his queen, and other women occasionally seduced him from her, yet over his mind, Elizabeth, from first to last, certainly held potent sway, an influence most dangerous in the hands of a woman who possessed more cunning than firmness, more skill in concocting a diplomatic intrigue than power to form a rational resolve. 
she was ever successful in carrying her own purposes but she seldom had a wise or good end in view the advancement of her own relatives and the depreciation of her husband's friends and family were her chief objects elizabeth gained her own way with her husband by an assumption of the deepest humility her words were soft and caressing her glances timid the acknowledgment of elizabeth's marriage was followed by a series of the most brilliant feats and tournaments that had been witnessed in england since the establishment of the order of the garter by edward the third at these scenes elizabeth presided surrounded by a virgin train of lovely sisters who were the cynosure of the eyes of the unmarried baronage of england although these nobles had suffered all the portionless daughters of the duchess of bedford to reach ages from twenty to thirty unwooed and unwedded yet they now found that no beauties were comparable to the sisters of her whom the king delighted to honor the exultation of so many fair rivals did not add to the new-made queen's popularity with the female nobility of england while her heroic brother anthony woodville by his beauty his learning and his prowess in the tilt-yard with better reason raised considerable envy among his own sex elizabeth incensed the ancient nobility by the activity with which she made it her numerous tribe among the greatest heirs and heiresses of the realm anthony woodville married the orphan of lord scales the richest heiress in the kingdom whom the duchess of york designed for her son clarence neither infantine juvenility nor the extreme of dotage seems to have been objected by the woodvilles if there were a superfluity of the goods of this world for the queen's eldest brother a fine young man wedded for his great jointure catherine the dowager duchess of norfolk then in her eightieth year a diabolical marriage wrathfully exclaims william of worcester soon after the queen had made the match between the young heiress of scales and her brother anthony the ladies of england chose that gallant knight to sustain the honor of his country at the tournament they expected would be proclaimed in celebration of elizabeth's coronation on the wednesday before easter day fourteen sixty five on the return of sir anthony woodville from high mass with his royal sister at the chapel of the sheen palace a bevy of her ladies surrounded him and by the presentation of a gold knee-band figured with s s and ornamented with a forget-me-not gave some mystical intimation that he was expected to remember his knightly devour of high emprise at the coronation of his sister the antagonist he selected was the most renowned champion of europe being count de la roche illegitimate son of philip of burgundy and the constant companion of all the rash enterprises of his brother charles the bold whether in field or tourney to this opponent anthony woodville who had now adopted the title of lord scales in right of his lady thus wrote from the palace of sheen truth it is that the wednesday next before the solemn and devout resurrection of our blessed saviour and redeemer for certain causes i drew me near toward the queen of england and of france my sovereign lady to whom i am right humble servant subject and brother and as i spoke to her highness on my knees my bonnet off my head according to my duty i know not how it happened but all the ladies of her court environed me about and anon i took heed that they had tied above my left knee a band of gold 
garnished with precious stones, which formed a letter. It was a collar of SS, meaning souvenance or remembrance, which, when I perceived, truth to say, it came nigher to my heart than to my knee. And to this collar was hanging a noble flower of souvenance, enameled and in manner of emprise. And then one of the ladies said to me full sweetly, that I ought to take a step fitting for the time. Then each of them withdrew demurely to their places. And I, all abashed at this adventure, rose up to go and thank them for their rich and honorable present. But when I took up my cap, I found in it a letter written on vellum, and only closed and bound with a gold thread. Now I thought this letter contained the will of the ladies expressed in writing, and that I should know the adventure which the flower of souvenance was given me to undertake. Then humbly did I thank the queen, who of her grace had permitted such honor to be done me in her noble presence, and especially did I thank the ladies for their noble present. I went forthwith to the king of England, my sovereign lord, to show him the emprise, and that he would give me leave and license to accomplish the contents of the said letter, to bring the adventure of the flower of souvenance to a conclusion. King Edward broke the thread of gold. He read the articles of combat, and permitted the jousts. Then Woodville forwarded the articles of combat, and the enamel jewel of forget-me-not, to the Count de la Roche, by a herald, requesting him, to touch the flower with his worthy and knightly hand, in token of his acceptance of the challenge. The count did so, and expected to be one of the knights sent by Charles the Bold, to do honor to the coronation tournament of the queen. The coronation of Elizabeth was appointed at Westminster Abbey, Whitsunday, the 26th of May. On Whitsun Eve, the Queen entered London from Eltham Palace, the mayor and city authorities meeting her at the foot of Shooter's Hill, and conducting her through Southwark to the Tower. That morning, Edward kept court at the Tower, where he knighted thirty-two persons, among whom were five judges and six citizens, and behaved with the utmost popularity, in order to obtain the favor of the citizens for his Queen. She was carried through the city to her palace of Westminster in a litter borne on long poles, like a sedan chair, supported by stately pacing steeds. The new-made knights all rode, on this occasion, in solemn procession before the queen's litter. She was crowned next day, with great solemnity, in Westminster Abbey, the young Duke of Clarence officiating as high steward. After the coronation, the queen sat in state at a grand banquet in Westminster Hall, where the Bishop of Rochester, who sang the mass at her consecration, took his place at the king's right hand, and the Duke of Buckingham, now the king's brother-in-law, by reason of his wedlock with Catherine Woodville, sat at his left. Charles the Bold fulfilled his promise of sending to England a sovereign prince of Elizabeth's kin, to convince the Londoners that Edward had taken to himself a helpmate of princely alliances. Count James of St. Paul, uncle to the Duchess of Bedford, landed at Greenwich some days before the coronation, and brought with him, not the champion of Burgundy, challenged by the queen's brother, but a hundred knights with their servants. These Flemish chevaliers constituted an armed band of mercenaries, ready to aid in enforcing obeisance, if any opposition had occurred at the recognition of Elizabeth as queen consort. The king regularly paid them for their attendance, for he presented the Count de St. Paul with three hundred nobles, each of his chevaliers with fifty. 
Elizabeth's marriage with Edward the Fourth drew upon them the enmity of no less a person than the celebrated Isabel of Castile, Queen of Spain. In the Harleian manuscripts is a letter from the Spanish ambassador, Granfidius de Sanciola, who uses these remarkable words. The Queen of Castile has turned in her heart from England in time past for the unkindness she took of the King of England, Edward the Fourth, whom God pardon, for his refusing her and taking to wife a widow woman of England, for which cause there was mortal war between him and the Earl of Warwick, even to his death. The benefactions which Margaret of Anjou had bestowed upon Cambridge were continued by her successor, for early in 1465, Elizabeth appropriated a part of her income to the completion of the good work of her former mistress, and Queen's College owes its existence to these royal ladies. Anjou's heroine and the paler rose, the rival of her crown and of her woes. The enmity between Elizabeth and Warwick had not at this time amounted to anything serious, since he stood as godfather to her eldest daughter, born at Westminster Palace, 1466. The baptism of this princess for a while conciliated her two grandmothers, Cicely, Duchess of York, and Jaquetta, Duchess of Bedford, who were likewise her sponsors. The christening was performed with royal pomp, and the babe received her mother's name of Elizabeth a proof that Edward was more inclined to pay a compliment to his wife than to his haughty mother. Some months after the queen had brought an heiress to the throne, she ventured on another affront to the all-powerful minister, general, and relative of her royal lord. Warwick had set his mind on marrying Anne, the heiress of the Duke of Exeter, to his nephew, George Neville. Meantime, the queen slyly brought the consent of the rapacious Duchess of Exeter for 4,000 marks, and married the young bride to her eldest son by Sir John Gray at Greenwich Palace, October 1466. The queen's eagerness for wealthy alliances was punished by the loss of her purchase money, for the heiress of Exeter died in her minority. As prime minister, relative, and general of Edward IV, Warwick had, from 1460 to 1465, borne a sway in England almost amounting to despotism. This influence was gradually transferred to the Queen's family. Edward had likewise so far forgotten gratitude and propriety as to have offered some personal insult to a female relative of Warwick, generally supposed to be Isabel, his eldest daughter, who was, as the old chroniclers declare, the finest young lady in England. This conduct was the more aggravating, since Warwick had certainly delayed his master's marriage with various princesses, in hopes that, as soon as Isabel was old enough, Edward would have made her his queen, a speculation forever disappointed by the exultation of Elizabeth Grey. Warwick gave his daughter Isabel in marriage to the Duke of Clarence, and England was soon after in a state of insurrection. As popular fury was especially directed against the Queen's family, the Woodvilles were advised to abscond for a time. The first outbreak of the muttering storm was a rebellion in Yorkshire, under a freebooter called Robin of Reddesdale, declared by some to have been a noble, outlawed for the cause of the Red Rose. The insurgent defeated Edward IV's forces at Edgecote, and pursuing the fugitives from the field into the forest of Dean, 
found there concealed the queen's father, who was then high treasurer, with his eldest son John. They were in the names, if not by the order, of Clarence and Warwick, hurried to Northampton and beheaded, without judge or jury. For the queen's mother, a still more fearful doom was intended. One of those terrific accusations of witchcraft was prepared against her, which were occasionally aimed at ladies of royal rank, whose conduct afforded no mark for other calumny. This was the third accusation of the kind, which had taken place in the royal family since the year 1419. The queen was preparing to accompany her husband in a progress into Norfolk, when this astounding intelligence reached her. The murder of her father and brother appears to have taken place in the middle of harvest, 1469. The blow must have fallen with great severity on Elizabeth, whose affections were knit so strongly to her own family. When the king advanced to the north in order to inquire into these outrages, he was detained in some kind of restraint by Warwick and his brother Montague at Warwick Castle, where an experiment was tried to shake his affections to Elizabeth by the insinuation that her whole influence over him proceeded from her mother's skill in witchcraft. For this purpose, Thomas Wake, a partisan of the Neville faction, brought to Warwick Castle part of the stock in trade of a sorceress, which he declared was captured at Grafton. Edward was far from being proof against such follies, yet this accusation seems to have had no effect on his mind. After being carried to Middleham Castle, Warwick's stronghold in the north, where he was detained some time, he entered into negotiations for marrying his infant heiress, Elizabeth of York, with young George Neville. This scheme greatly displeased the uncle and godfather of the boy, the Archbishop of York, who persuaded his brothers to let Edward stay with him at his seat called the Moor, in Hertfordshire. Warwick sent up Edward, very severely guarded, from Middleham Castle. From the Moor, Edward escaped speedily to Windsor, and was soon once more in his metropolis, which was perfectly devoted to him, and where, it appears, his queen had remained in security during these alarming events. Again England was his own, for Warwick and Clarence, in alarm at his escape from the moor, betook themselves to their fleet and fled. But the queen's gallant brother, Anthony Woodville, who had the command of the Yorkist navy, intercepted and captured all the rebel ships, excepting that in which Warwick and Clarence, with their families, escaped with difficulty to France. The queen was placed by the king in safety in the tower before he marched to give battle to the insurgents. Her situation gave hopes of an addition to the royal family. She was the mother of three girls, but had not borne male heirs to the house of York. Edward soon found that a spirit of disaffection was busy in his army. He narrowly escaped, being surrendered once more into the power of Warwick, who had returned to England, but being warned by his faithful sergeant of minstrels, Alexander Carlyle, he fled half-dressed from his revolting troops in the dead of night, and embarked at Lynn with a few faithful friends. Elizabeth was thus left alone with her mother to bide the storm. She was resident at the tower, where her party still held Henry the Sixth the prisoner. While danger was yet at a distance, the queen's resolutions were remarkably valiant. She victualled and prepared the metropolitan fortress for siege, with great assiduity. 
but the very day that warwick and clarence entered london in a truly feminine panic elizabeth betook herself to her barge and fled up the thames to westminster not to her own palace but to a strong gloomy building called the sanctuary which occupied a space at the end of st margaret's churchyard here she registered herself her mother her three little daughters elizabeth mary and cicely with the faithful lady scrope her attendant as sanctuary women and in this dismal place she awaited with a heavy heart the hour in which the fourth child of edward the fourth was to see the light on the first of november fourteen seventy the long hoped for heir of york was born during this dark eclipse of the fortunes of his house the queen was in want of everything but thomas milling abbot of westminster sent various conveniences from the abbey close by mother cobb a well-disposed midwife resident in the sanctuary charitably assisted the distressed queen in the hour of maternal peril and acted as a nurse to the little prince nor did elizabeth in this fearful crisis want friends for master sarago her physician attended herself and her son while a faithful butcher john gould prevented the whole sanctuary party from being starved into surrender by supplying them with half a beef and two muttons a week the little prince was baptized soon after his birth in the abbey with no more ceremony than if he had been a poor man's son thomas milling the abbot of westminster however charitably stood godfather for the little prisoner and the duchess of bedford and lady scrope were his godmothers the sub-prior performed the ceremony and they gave him the name of his exiled sire early in march the queen was cheered by the news that edward the fourth her royal lord had landed at ravenspur and soon after that his brother clarence forsook warwick from that moment the revolution of his restoration was as rapid as that of his deposition when edward drew near the capital he sent on the ninth of april fourteen seventy very comfortable messages to his queen and to his true lords servants and lovers who advised and practised secretly how he might be received and welcome in his city of london the result was that the metropolis opened its gates for edward the fourth and the tower with the unresisting prisoner king henry was surrendered to him edward hurried to the sanctuary and comforted the queen that had a long time abided there the security of her person resting solely on the great franchises of that holy place sojourning in deep trouble sorrow and heaviness which she sustained with all manner of patience belonging to any creature and as constantly as ever was seen by any person of such high estate to endure in the witch season nathless she had brought into this world to the king's greatest joy a fair son a prince wherewith she presented her husband at his coming to his heart's singular comfort and gladness and to all them that him truly loved the very morning of this joyful meeting elizabeth accompanied by her royal lord left the sanctuary never before had westminster sanctuary received a royal guest and little was it ever deemed a prince of wales would first see light within walls that had hitherto only sheltered homicides robbers and bankrupts 
the ruthless wars of the roses indeed made the royal and the noble acquainted with strange housemates but never did the power of sanctuary appear so great a blessing to human nature as when the innocent relatives of the contending parties fled to the altar for safety like all benefits sanctuary was abused but assuredly it sheltered many a human life in these destructive and hideous contests the same day that edward the fourth took elizabeth out of sanctuary he carried her to the city where he lodged her and her children in his mother's palace castle baynard a bastille built fortification which had been held in his father's time when the tower of london was untenable here edward and his queen heard divine service that night and kept good friday solemnly next day on easter sunday edward gained the battle of barnet and the deaths of warwick and montague ensured the ultimate success of the house of york elizabeth remained at the tower while her husband gained the battle of tewkesbury the news of his success had scarcely reached her before the tower was threatened with storm by falcon bridge a relative of the earl of warwick and therein says fleetwood was the queen my lord prince the ladies the queen's daughters all likely to stand in the greatest jeopardy that ever was from the formidable attack of this last partisan of lancaster but the queen's valiant brother anthony woodville was there and the queen relying on his gallant aid stood the danger this time without running away but assuredly nature had never intended elizabeth for an amazon after edward had crushed rebellion by almost exterminating his opponents he turned his attention to rewarding the friends to whom he owed his restoration he sagaciously considered that the interesting situation in which his wife had placed herself during his exile had greatly contributed to his ultimate success indeed the feminine helplessness of elizabeth woodville and the passive resignation with which she endured the evils and inconveniences of the sanctuary house in the hour of maternal weakness and agony had created for her a tender regard throughout the realm that actually did more benefit to the cause of york than the indomitable spirit of margaret of anjou effected for the opposite party wonder and affection were awakened for elizabeth and during the winter of fourteen seventy to seventy one tidings of the queen's proceedings in sanctuary were the favorite gossip of the matrons of london edward the fourth bestowed princely rewards on those humble friends who had aided his elizabeth as he calls her in that fearful crisis end of section eighteen thank you for listening to this episode of all things plantagenet remember we also have a website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes thank you for listening and have a great day.